You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Ukraine confirms that it was hit by wiper malware last week as tension between Moscow and Kiev remains high. Russia continues marshalling conventional forces around Ukraine. CISA advises organizations to prepare to withstand Russian cyber attacks. Other cyber espionage campaigns are reported, as is a new strain of ransomware. Microsoft's Kevin McGee provides friendly counsel for CISOs and boards. Our guest is Claire Rosso from ISC Squared on the communications gap between cybersecurity teams and executive leaders when it comes to ransomware. And the natural disaster in Tonga may offer lessons in resilience and recovery. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, January 19th, 2022. Ukraine has confirmed, according to the Washington Post, that last week's Whispergate cyber attacks were indeed destructive and represented neither the hacktivist defacement nor the ransomware crimes they misrepresented themselves as. Ukraine's State Service of Special Communications and Information Protection said, quote, Thus, with a high probability, it can be argued that the defacement of the websites of the attacked government agencies and the destruction of the data using a wiper are components of one cyber attack aimed at as much damage as possible to the infrastructure of state electronic resources. End quote. Ukraine is calling the campaign Bleeding Bear and attributed it to Russia. Security firm ESET has tweeted its take on how Whispergate used third-party criminal services to help stage the attacks. These tools are useful in themselves, and they also lent further verisimilitude to the pretense that the whole campaign was conventionally criminal as opposed to state-directed. The selection of ransomware as cover for the attacks is unsurprising. Ransomware is not only a commonplace criminal activity, but it can also be, as CyberScoop observes, highly disruptive. The pretense of ransomware is not only useful for misdirection and concealing an incipient cyber attack, but the tools used by ransomware gangs are readily repurposed for espionage and sabotage. Concern that the crisis could escalate remains high. Over the weekend, reports from Ukraine said that Russia had begun withdrawing personnel from its embassy in Kiev. U.S. White House Press Secretary Saki commented on the withdrawal in yesterday's media briefing, seeing it as a significant harbinger of increased tension. C-SPAN has the recording. 
I think, as I noted a few minutes ago, we believe we're now at a stage where Russia could at any point launch an attack on Ukraine. Uh, I would say that's more stark than we have been. Uh, in terms of the decision uh, to move um, uh, to move it, uh, to evacuate their embassy or to move personnel out of their embassy. We have information that indicates uh, the Russian government was preparing to evacuate their family members from the Russian embassy in Ukraine in late December and early January. Uh, we certainly would refer you to uh, them for more specifics uh, about what their decision is, but we don't have an assess assessment on why in the meaning. Initial reports held that the embassy staff in Kiev was being drawn down and subsequent reports claim that Russian diplomats were being repatriated from western Ukraine. For its part, according to Newsweek, Russia has said the reports are all nonsense, that it hasn't pulled any of its diplomats from Ukraine. Aware of heightened tensions and with vivid memories of NotPetya and WannaCry, governments are preparing for subsequent waves of cyber attacks. The deputy secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council described the steps Kiev is taking to protect the country from further cyber attack in an interview with The Record. The U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency yesterday published advice on how organizations can protect themselves against cyber attacks of the kind Ukraine sustained last week. The advisory is designed to help organizations defend against, detect, respond to, and ride out destructive cyber attacks. Poland has also raised its level of cyber alert, Reuters reports. Russia has consistently represented NATO and the U.S. as aggressors, interested in using Ukraine to hold Russia at risk. But it's fair to say that this is a minority view. NATO wants further talks with Russia over the crisis, but Moscow says it won't consider renewed talks until it receives responses to the proposals it put on the table last week. Those answers are expected sometime tomorrow, and it seems unlikely that they'll be the answers Moscow says it wants, since that would amount to NATO unraveling more than two decades of alliance building. The CyberWire's current coverage of the crisis in Ukraine can be found on our website. Security firm ESET has offered an account of an APT, the Do Not Team, which it regards as unsophisticated but highly focused and tenacious. The researchers describe two malware strains the Do Not team uses, Dark Musical and Get It. The spear phishing emails were sent in persistent waves, and the emails didn't use spoofing. Many of them bore email addresses associated with the targeted organizations, which suggests that some of the accounts had been successfully compromised. The researchers make no attribution, but the Do Not team's focused list of targeted countries is perhaps suggestive— Pakistan, Bangladesh, Nepal, and Sri Lanka. So too are the file names the coders used in preparing their malware. A lot of them reference characters in the movie High School Musical. Who knew that spies or crooks would be fans of Disney adaptations of Romeo and Juliet? We didn't, but well, you think about it, it's kind of sweet. Next time, kids, try Lady and the Tramp, a flick that's worth an homage or two. A post at Bushido Token Threat Intel describes what appears to be a cyber espionage campaign against industrial control system vendors, government agencies, non-governmental organizations, and university researchers in several countries. The campaign itself proceeded through phishing. A familiar mailbox phishing kit is being used to harvest usernames and passwords. 
The list of targets is a long one, and you can find that list on our website. Attribution is unclear beyond some circumstantial code similarities to tools used by Russian and North Korean intelligence services. The researcher speculates about a possible motive, quote, Supplemental targets such as ICSOT organizations and educational institutions would complement this intelligence-gathering campaign if access could be obtained at these entities. From this, it could be suggested that the adversary behind this campaign is potentially a major source of fossil fuels and is doing research on the renewable energy sector as a threat to its income. End quote. Fin8, a financially motivated threat actor that's been active against the retail and hospitality sectors since 2016 at least, is apparently responsible for using a new relatively evasive ransomware strain, White Rabbit, against a U.S. bank last month. Trend Micro researchers who yesterday published a description of the attack write, quote, Its payload binary requires a specific command line password to decrypt its internal configuration and proceed with its ransomware routine. This method of hiding malicious activity is a trick that the ransomware family Egregor uses to hide malware techniques from analysis. End quote. The malicious payload is small, about 100 kilobytes, and appears inactive and innocuous until it's activated. Saturday's eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Haipei volcano disrupted Tonga's internet connection and many other modes of communication, providing an extreme test of response, resilience, and recovery. Apparently, the nation's undersea cable was severed. MIT Technology Review has an account of what will need to be done to reconnect the Pacific nation with the rest of the world. And as we look for lessons to be learned in resilience and recovery, let's not forget the immediate human toll of the disaster. Our best hopes for recovery and consolation to everyone in Tonga and best wishes to the international relief efforts underway. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. 
That's why Cloudflare created the first ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. The team at Cybersecurity Nonprofit Association ISC Squared recently polled 750 C-level executives in the U.S. and U.K. to gauge how they're communicating with stakeholders in their organizations about ransomware. Some of the results were surprising. Claire Rosso is CEO at ISC Squared. Well, I'd have to say that first and foremost, what stops me in my track is hearing that 70% of C-level executives believe that they are confident in their cyber defensives. Hmm, that's interesting. Is that is that come in higher or lower than you thought it would be? I think it's a little higher than I expected. And part of the reason I say that is 60%. There's several reports that say 6 in 10, 60% of organizations will be hit by ransomware. And of those that hit are hit by ransomware, only about 50% are going to be able to effectively restore their data. So hearing 70% of C-suite folks say, we got it covered, doesn't, doesn't line up for me. There might be a little bit of overconfidence there. Where do you suppose that overconfidence might be coming from? Well, I think one of the things that we're seeing and we're hearing a lot is that in the C-suite, in the boardroom, individuals need to build their cyber literacy. We've talked about this around financials for years and years and years, but now it's time that we need to talk about it about cybersecurity. What do they understand and what do they need to understand? And there's a role that the cybersecurity professional can play in helping elevate that cyber literacy within the C-suite. Let's talk about some of the other findings of the report. I mean, communications was one of the things that you highlighted here. Right. We think the report identifies that there is an opportunity to increase communications and reporting to leadership. The cybersecurity team within organizations should think about how can I increase the frequency and the appropriate level of detail that I'm giving to the C-suite to help instill confidence in the security of their operations and facilitate more informed decisions, as well as support the calls for more investment in cybersecurity, both people and technology. Was there anything in the report that was particularly surprising to you? One of the things that I would say wasn't surprising, but that I was actually pleased by, is when we asked what the top areas of concern for the C-suite were, I think people were asking the right questions. They wanted to know, is our security function working with IT to ensure our backups and restoration plans will be able to work Right. They won't be adversely. If we do have a ransomware attack, we can back up our data and get back running. I like the fact that they were um, knowledgeable enough to understand that they need to be prepared to engage with law enforcement in the event of a ransomware attack. Um, they ask questions like, are we prepared to engage with a cybersecurity firm to help us investigate and respond to a cyber incident? 
where are we most vulnerable? Things like that. Those are the questions that the C-suite's asking, and those are good questions to be asking. You know, this report focuses on those executives in the C-suite. For the folks who are doing the work in the cybersecurity department, what are your recommendations for them? What should be their approach to best communicating their needs to the folks up in the C-suite? Right. I would take advantage of the headlines that we're seeing in the news every day. The next time you see a major headline about a cyber breach, when the Log4j happened in December, when something like that happens, use that as an opportunity to speak to the executives in your organization. Talk about how you're prepared to address these cyber risks and talk about what you need to be better prepared to address future cyber risks. That's Claire Rosso from ISC Squared. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Kevin McGee. He's the Chief Security Officer at Microsoft Canada. Kevin, always great to have you back. You know, I want to touch today on the relationship between CISOs and their boards of directors. At times, this can be a challenging relationship. And I know this is something that that you have spent some time working on. I wanted to touch base with you for your specific insights here. Yeah, thanks for having me again, Dave. Um, having sat on a lot of boards and having been a cybersecurity professional, I've, I've got a foot in each camp. And there's a lot of articles and whatnot published on, you know, how best to, to talk to boards. But what happens when it goes wrong when you present to the board as a as a CISO? And how do you rebuild that relationship? Or or how can you, uh, you know, reapproach the board if, uh, you know, you have a, a misaligned a set of mis-expectations? And so I do a lot of uh, what I call CISO therapy sessions after they've been sat. <laughs> by the board or our had bad encounters and just trying to reset those uh, relationships. And I've developed sort of a seven-step program to help them that's been super effective. All right. Well, let's go through it together. Well, walk us through the steps. First is uh, employee empathy. Uh, it's really understanding, you know, what their situation is. Um, the, the I call it the current ratio epiphany. When I was sitting on an audit uh, committee, we were talking about the current ratio for about half an hour, and everyone seemed really concerned about it. But it had been 20 years since I took financial accounting, and, and finally I raised my hand and said, I don't know what a current ratio is, or should it be bigger or smaller? And it turned out a lot of people around the table didn't know either. And then it dawned on me that that's how folks must feel around the boardroom table when they talk about cybersecurity, when they don't understand uh, the topic. They don't want to look like they don't understand from their peers. So employing empathy, really understanding their role and what their, their challenges are is, is sort of step one. 
and then along with that is confirming altitude. Uh, the uh, the board should have their noses in, figure, uh, fingers out figuratively. But if you come to the board as a CISO with operational information or indicators, expect operational uh, questions to to go to come back. Then we're going to get into the fingers in uh, to your business instead of where they should be at the proper altitude, uh, which is noses out or noses in, sorry, fingers fingers out. So making sure you confirm that altitude and stay at the proper altitude is sort of step two. The next three are sort of teach, tailor, and take control, uh, really teaching the board about uh, their own personal awareness and uh, understanding their role in the organization and the unintended consequences of their decisions to create a compensation plan for CEO to uh, drive um, growth and what that can have effect, tailoring the message and making sure that you're, you're again, uh, communicating at the right uh, right level. And then taking control of the metrics they're using, uh, such as a NIST maturity level uh, to manage your um, your growth of a security program as opposed to a you know, number of attacks on the website or whatnot can really change the discussion. And the last two are just partner and, and build trust, you know, really get them engaged in tabletop exercise uh, and build consistency and relations with individuals. And ultimately, uh, you know, never surprise the board. You should really, when you come to that board, uh, they should be fully aware of what they're going to talk about, what that will look like, and there's no surprises. And, and that's sort of the rehabilitation program that I use with CISOs. And I suppose, I mean, it, it's got to be easier to establish these things off the bat in in a positive way than, than try to do damage control after you've you've had a bad encounter. I think too often CISOs wait till they're summoned to the board and then they throw together what they think the board wants to see or, uh, again, overload them with uh, with information. Uh, the average board package can be 300 to 500 pages of material. Um, you know, get to the point, summarize. Again, apply some empathy. What are the things that they're going to want to learn? What do they know? What do they know? What do they don't know? And and give them the benefit of the doubt in terms of their ability to to understand the information. But then also, you know, summarize in ways that are, are easily digestible and not using big words or industry words or whatnot as well, too. So taking a, a very proactive approach to that relationship relationship is ultimately the key. You know, I, I've heard lots of folks say that you're you're much better off communicating with them in the language they understand, which quite often is is that of risk. And we talk about uh, you know protecting the crown jewels. It's it's one of the um, uh, examples I use all the time. Well, telling IT or security to protect the crown jewels. Why? What are the crown jewels? I'm not really sure what they are. And and um, walking through a business process and understanding where the critical aspects of the organization's um, you know data really is developed, maintained, and whatnot may throw some surprises. And that can't be done in a vacuum. That need, really needs to be defined uh, by the senior levels of the organization, including the board, what the risk tolerance is. And IT and security need to be a partner, not driving that overall discussion. So again, often the board doesn't know how to approach the subject. But we assume that they're on the board. They must know what they're they're doing. So employing empathy, understanding that they may not understand the basics we do, and you know, tell, uh, teaching them how uh, we go about evaluating risk, what, how we identify data in the business process, how we protect it, and whatnot. Um, it's not talking down to them. It's really empowering them to make better decisions, ask better questions, and provide better oversight. All right. Well, good insights for sure. Kevin McGee, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Dave. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.